0: i Frida Pauly. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Pymetrics. I'm a former neuroscientist turned entrepreneur. We're using behavioral science and artificial intelligence to make hiring more accurate and more fair. We have to forge our path and we have to be there creating the, the path forward for women in general, you know?
1: This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Helping women empower themselves financially. Now, Veronica Dagger, Frida Poli is the CEO and founder of Pymetrics, which uses artificial intelligence to help take bias out of the hiring process. She explains how when you're best suited for your job, you'll have the most success. So Frida, how did you know you wanted to study science when you were a young woman?
0: I was always someone that was really fascinated by creating things and learning things. And I think that there are different ways you could go. Actually, I'm going to out myself. I wanted to be a journalist at some point. Because I thought that the fact of discovering things was such a cool thing. Um, But I think science also allows for discovery and also allows for creation. Um, So, yeah, it was either a journalist, a detective, or a scientist. Those were kind of my three options. And uh, I kind of stumbled into science um, as an undergrad. I learned about brain science, and I just thought that was kind of the coolest thing you could ever study because people are so fascinating, and why wouldn't we want to learn more about why people um, do what they do? And that was kind of the hook, was just discovery, creation, and then stumbling onto uh, onto, uh,
1: people science or brain science. So you worked at Harvard and MIT as a neuroscientist for about a decade. What made you switch careers? I really liked the science that
0: I was doing. It then just became too removed from the real world. I wanted to do something that had much more application to people's everyday lives, right? And unless I wanted to start sticking electrodes in people people's brains, that wasn't going to happen in science. So I actually was kind of at a loss. I was kind of in my mid-30s, had spent a decade in science, really thought I was going to go on to have just this you know, prolific scientific career, but found myself dissatisfied. So it was kind of more of a push than it was a pull. And um, I was also a single parent at the time, so it was a, definitely a challenging period in my life. But I was just convinced that the science we were doing needed to have something more real-world uh, focused. And so I stumbled upon, you know, the MBA program at Harvard. They were uh, looking for life scientists like myself to come. I got a fellowship. And it was really there that I saw the problem of talent matching um, firsthand because that's what MBA students do. They recruit for two years. And that's when I kind of the, the light bulb went off. And I was like, wow, this would be such an amazing application for the science that we've been developing in the lab um, for so long. So it really kind of was a very iterative process. It wasn't like I had this flash of genius that, oh, my gosh, I'm going to start this amazing company and be an It was very iterative. It was a slower process than I would have liked, but it was realizing that I love science, but wanted to do something in the real world with it. And what real world problem could we fix or solve with the science? And and that was where the MBA program was super helpful.
1: So I know your business is probably very technical. Can you give us sort of a snapshot of how it works? Sure. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, so it is
0: technical, just like Google's technical, but the problem we're trying to solve and how it works is actually pretty simple. So we're trying to understand something more sort of Fundamental about people that what's on their resume, right? So, typically, the way that job seeking works is um, people are judging you by your resume. And unfortunately, there's just a lot of challenges with that because, you know, it's very sort of superficial. It's kind of judging a book by its cover. Um, And it's also very backward facing. If you've never done the job that you might want to do in the future, how will you ever prove to someone that you're good at it, that you could be good at it? So, what we do is we look at people's cognitive, social, and emotional traits using the, you know, behavioral science that we've been using in the Lab now for a couple decades. And with that, instead of looking at you know, your experiences, we look at your aptitude for things, your potential, essentially, for a role. And so it's much more, I think, optimistic in terms of how we look at people. And it's also much more future-facing because it's about what you could do, not just about what you've had the opportunity to, to do. And so we use these cognitive, social, and emotional traits to understand something about you. And I heard you went through it before, before the show, so you know what it's like. And then we also ask people within the company to go through the exact same process so that we understand the cognitive, social, and emotional traits that are making people successful in different roles. And as I mentioned to you before, there's no right or wrong. It's just a matching system. It's like people that are in sales look like this. People that are in this look like that. And where do you fit Invest right? And then at the end of the day, it's a sorting hat. So it's not an experience where you're told, oh, you passed or you failed or like to be good at all these jobs, you have to be this way. It's much more about Here's your profile. Here's what you have. Here's where you sort of shine. And here are the roles where what we've our system has determined um, have a similar profile of people with your same sort of aptitudes um, where they're shining. Does that make sense? So it's really kind of a matching system or a sorting hat to help people find their right role. And It's different than what we do now, which is submit a resume. If I haven't had that job before, good luck ever getting that in the future, right? Um, It's very superficial, right? It's very biased. I mean, there's tons of research showing it's biased against women. It's biased against people with ethnic sounding names. It's biased against people that are older. It's biased against people that don't go to prestigious schools like Harvard and MIT. I mean, it's just full of bias. And at the end of the day, it's not very accurate. I mean, the failure rate is 50% of first year hires fail using this kind of very simplistic sort of keyword system. So it's really trying to make that matching much more accurate, um, much more holistic, looking at a person as a whole person, and then much more fair.
1: And so some people will say, well, I would imagine, is some of this powered by artificial intelligence, right? And so some people will say, well, artificial intelligence, many of the programmers are white guys. And so how does something that's programmed by white guys, and there's nothing wrong with white guys, but how does that increase diversity, right? Yeah. So. I think it's actually less important who does the
0: programming and more important um, in terms of who who designed it and how it was designed. So PyMetrics was started by two women, um, one of whom was not Caucasian. And I think we've always had a very diverse team. So the design of the artificial intelligence dust was very, very important. And what I mean by that is, you know, there's a whole debate out there now about, you know, biased AI, is it more biased than humans, is it less biased than humans? At the end of the day, it's really... The AI is going to mirror the design of the human beings that built it. And so the way that we designed it at Pymetrics was to make sure that the algorithms we built, first of all, are explainable. So it's not black box. It's not like I just give you an output and I don't tell you how I got there. So it's explainable. Um, And the second thing we do is we audit our AI. So what we do is once we've built a model, we go back and we say, is this model acting in a fair way towards women, towards people of uh, different ethnic backgrounds, uh, towards older workers, and towards people that are not basically coming from socioeconomic backgrounds of privilege. And we have a process that we've developed for that auditing. We've open sourced it on GitHub, so anyone can go and check it out. And if the answer to that audit trail is, no, it's actually not being fair, meaning it's statistically showing a difference between groups, we will go back and fix it, essentially. And that's kind of our like pledge, is that we are not going to release an algorithm that we know is having bias against in any of those domains. Does that make sense? And that's quite different from most of the algorithms that are out there sort of being being used in mass production because people are not auditing their technology and therefore it could have massive bias. And unfortunately, I think a lot of companies are adopting this kind of you know ostrich in the sand approach of like, well, I don't know and therefore I don't need to know. And we think that's just a very bad strategy. I mean, I think artificial intelligence has massive potential to eliminate some of the bias. It also has massive potential to to make it worse. And we really have to just be designing the AI in a much more thoughtful and careful way.
1: How do I stay competitive if I'm afraid AI is going to cause me to lose my job?
0: I personally don't work with any companies that are not looking for lots of talent that they feel they can't find. So I actually think it's less about worrying that the AI is going to take my job and much more about figuring out how do I work with technology systems because that's going to be the, the way of the future. I don't I'm a strong believer that universal basic income is just not a great way to approach this future state and i don't think it's going to happen i mean look around there's so many things that could be done better in the world that's called work that's called jobs you know and i think what i what we see much more clearly is that companies are struggling to understand what are the jobs of the future going to be how do i fit my workforce of today that i actually like and that i feel is is you know performing well in the workforce of today but how do i make them competitive you know what i mean so i think it's much more so to answer your question i think you know, really learning to work with these digital systems, these AI systems, and just kind of educating yourself around how to best do that. And rather than sort of saying, oh, my gosh, I'm afraid of them and I I don't want to go there. And I think we're all going to have to do this. I mean, doctors now are being confronted with the fact that, you know, algorithms can make better diagnoses. So it's not just, you know, sort of the blue collar jobs that are at risk. It's really all professional jobs are going to be impacted by this. And I think we have to, you know, we all have to be aware that this is, you know, you know, something we have to adapt to, you know. And and by the way, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be very beneficial. I mean, when we, ad- when we implement our technology, we don't see recruiters getting laid off. It's quite the opposite. Recruiters usually come to us saying, oh my gosh, I have so much work to do. And not, I mean, you know, have you ever tried hiring someone? It's like a full-time job, right? Yeah. And so it's really about making their lives easier and up-leveling their jobs so they can be more strategic rather than just a resume cruncher. So my general advice would just be figure out how to work with it, because guaranteed that's going to be sort of the future state and you will be, I think, made into a more strategic person within the organization
1: in that way. You had said there's never a good time to start a company. What yeah. do you mean by that?
0: <laughs> I think there's never a good time to have a child. I think there's never a good time to start a company. I mean, these big life changes are massive, massive life changes, right? And I think that um, oftentimes, especially I think in sort of younger younger people, um, there's a tendency to overplan. There's a tendency to be like, here's my five year plan. Here's my 10 year plan. Here's my 25 year plan. And I think probably I had one of those when I was in my 20s. I'm sure we all did. Right. And then, you know, I got divorced. Um, I was a single parent. I uh, my my co-spouse at the time, you know, lost his job. I had to support the family and life just blew up in my face, you know. And I think that that was a great learning experience for you just have to adapt to the circumstances that are in front of you. And I think that that's kind of been a massively important life lesson for me because it made me realize I can adapt. I can I can thrive in situations that I – if you had ever told me that was going to happen to me in my 20s, I would have just freaked out and, like, mm-hmm. you know, gone to bed and, like, never wanted to get out right. of, under the covers. But, you know, quite frankly, I think it was a moment in which I just was able to just make some leaps that I never would have done before um, and so what I mean by there's never a good time is just don't overplan it don't overthink it like you people are resourceful they will find ways to overcome the obstacles um, and, and I just truly believe that
1: coming up Frida Pali discusses the growing opportunities for women in tech and how to find your place amid emerging innovation
0: if your business needs a new application then developers will have to write code
1: Listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. So, you used to bring your daughter to investor pitch meetings, <laughs> um, and you said you just. Not, not by intention, <laughs> just by babysitter plans falling through, but yes. And you said you, you owned it. So, yeah. what, what do you mean by that one? Well, I just
0: remember this meeting where um, it's one of our current investors, and, you know, the babysitter. Called. I'm sure you've had we've all had this happen to us and said I can't make it and they didn't realize that this was a super important meeting and that I couldn't reschedule. And so I just brought my daughter with me, and um, and I went into the room, and I just said, oh, you know, here's the newest member of Pymetrics. Uh, <laughs> we start them young. She's eight or whatever she was at the time. And, you know, everyone just laughed and kind of went with it. And I just think that I tried to own it as much as possible instead of making it out to be like, oh, I'm sorry. This is a problem. It was just kind of like, hey, let's make light of this, and let's just all assume that we're all parents here or we've known people that have had these situations and can move forward. So.
1: What's your advice for
0: single moms who are thinking of switching careers? I think you, look, so I was in a position where I was fortunate I had an education. I got a fellowship to go to a you know prestigious MBA program. So I was lucky to have all of those resources, right? I think if you have the ability to tap into those resources, I would say use it um, in the sense that I think a lot of times we might think this isn't the right time, you know, especially being a single parent. You you always think, oh my gosh, I can't give up time with my child or I can't do that. But you kind of have to play the long game. You have to realize that, you know, Now, I mean, the realization for me was, okay, I need to be dependent on myself and that's it. And I have to focus on a career where I can actually um, sustain myself. So this is a small, small, not, not well-known fact, but science doesn't pay well. Um, <laughs> so I was making 37000 000, uh, as a postdoc at MIT in my mid thirties and supporting a child. With so all that education exactly, and that was pretty wow. uh, depressing, to say the least. Um, and I just thought to myself, I just this is this is not sustainable. I need to I need to do something else, you know. And so and and that was part of it. And you know, I've been fortunate to you know start a company. We now employ uh, about fifty percent women. We're one hundred and forty people. So I went from being a postdoc that made thirty seven thousand dollars a year to now employing seventy women across the globe. Um, so that feels like a Real, you know, win for, you know, single parents uh, and single moms. So the advice I would give is, you know, it's scary to be in that situation. Um, but you really have to, like, lean in and really just take just, you know, find the inner strength that you have to think long term about what's best for me, my child, my future, um, and sort of overcome some of those fears that you I 100% had in that situation of like, am I, am I going to be able to do this? And, and am I going to make it? I'm going to being completely honest here, so it's not a good, not a fun time in my life. I'm so.
1: sure, and I'm sure there's probably people. Maybe there was people in your life who were saying, "Oh my gosh, you have all these degrees, and now you're just going to walk away from it Absolutely. and become an entrepreneur." Yeah. Yeah. And so, how do you <laughs> deal with that, that pressure of people yeah. looking at you like yeah. saying, "Is she lost?" You yeah, know. yeah.
0: I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, I'm a bit of a stubborn person. I'm also very passionate, so I have to find something that I'm passionate about, otherwise. I always say I'm the worst employee in the world if I'm not passionate about what I'm doing. Um, And I just really felt, uh, you know, something click when I realized that we had a real problem here in terms of helping people find the roles and the jobs that they were best suited for Um, was just such a such a salient problem to everyone that I was, you know, observing at business school and also myself because I was in that position, right? I had been a scientist for a while, and I was like, no, I don't want to do this, but I had no idea of what I would be better suited for. So it was a very tangible problem for me. And so being that passionate about what I was doing allowed me to sort of those naysayer voices, whether they were in my head, because I definitely struggled with self-doubt, or whether they were out in the open. (laughs) My dad, who is, I love my dad, but he's a very dyed-in-the-wool Italian, uh, you know, man. And, you know, he was like, oh, Frida, what are you doing? You know, and I was like, <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. But um, so whatever, wherever those naysayers, uh, you know, wherever they were coming from, whether it was internal or external, I really just had to focus on the fact that I was super passionate about this. I really felt like there was a big opportunity here. It was a problem that I could see a lot of people facing. Um, and, and I just had to kind of summon that inner inner belief in myself.
1: A listener recently messaged me, Mm -hmm. and she said she finds it difficult to be one of a handful of women in a male-dominated office, and she's having trouble hanging in. She's actually an engineer and is thinking of switching. So I'm just wondering what advice— do you have for her? Yeah.
0: I mean, honestly, it's, you know, the single digit problem is what we call it in science where, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's hard. And I think what you have to do is find environments that are more female friendly, quite frankly. I mean, literally, I had the exact same experience we're interviewing for a head of marketing role. And this woman had just left a well-known, uh, you know, Silicon Valley firm. And she was literally she emailed me. She was like, you're the first woman that i have met in my my career search now whether it be an executive level at the board or at the board level the first person she'd been on this job search for a while right and she literally said to sent me this long email saying you know i i was really kind of th- about to throw in the towel and say you know maybe tech isn't for me because i just couldn't find an environment that that seemed like it reflected me. So I think, you know, I personally would say that we have to create more of those environments. I mean, Pymetrics is very, you know, proud of the fact that we are very diverse, uh, you know, especially for a technology company, but in general. But also you just have to, you know, you have to find those environments that are out there. um, And if you can't find them, you have to be, you have to create them. I mean, I think that was kind of part of the light bulb that went off for me is that Yes, there aren't many, you know, single mom entrepreneurs creating venture back companies, um, but that shouldn't that shouldn't stop us. Like that has to be we
1: have to we have to forge our path. Several of our women listeners have written to us and saying like, oh, I'm an executive or I'm traveling around and I'm trying to raise a family. Some of yeah. them are breastfeeding. Yep. Wondering if you have any advice in that regard. (laughs) Super personal question, but it's a hot topic. You know, so I've
0: had, so I'm now remarried and I have two more children. Um, So I was breastfeeding as recently as a few months ago and I was traveling. Um, And again, I mean, the fact of the matter is it's hard. I think we have to just be honest. Like being a working mom is hard. Being a stay-at-home mom is equally hard. I'm not saying they're better. Neither is easier or harder. But being a working mom is hard. You are constantly juggling things. You are constantly multitasking. And I mean, I've had experiences where I've literally had to like pull a blanket over my head and, you know, bring out my breast pump equipment and just, you know, be darned if like the two white guys sitting next to me, you know, had a problem. I'm like, I just need this needs to happen. I can't I can't help it, you know what I mean? Um but I think that normally like even even though it is a situation that you wouldn't optimally find yourself in, you just realize that people are more accommodating, you know, than you might think. So again, I think it's like just realizing it's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of things that you need to figure out on the fly a lot of times. Um, And, you know, that person that you think might not understand or might not be helpful or might be put off. Actually, a lot of times when you ask them for help, my experience is that they that they will be helpful, whoever in their whatever capacity they can be. So but I'm not trying to minimize the fact that it is You know, very challenging. And I always think I've heard so many stories of you know successful women that have said that multitasking is really kind of their secret sauce. I mean, there was a woman who was a very famous banker who was basically on a conference call with all these other executives, and she was like making brownies for her daughter's you know PTA meeting. And I mean, we've heard these stories over and over again where it's just like women. I mean, I think have the ability and have learned to have learned to or need to multitask in a way that that allows them to be successful. Right.
1: You said in the past you made the mistake of underselling yourself. What do you mean by that? Um, I think that,
0: you know, I'm somebody who I'm a scientist. I'm always going to think twice before I kind of say something out loud. And I think that a lot of times that has led to me not realizing that some of the stuff we were doing was actually so cool and cutting edge and really something that was actually really hard to do. And I think that's kind of what I mean by I was underselling myself, is that as a scientist, self-promotion is not something that you're taught in school or is something that you really are, uh, you know, is, is really valued. Mm. But I think once you get into business, you kind of have to be more, you know— advocating for yourself and saying, hey, you know what we're doing actually is really hard. You know, and what we've done in the past is it's not something that's easily replicable, right? As a scientist, you're expecting that everyone's just going to look at the data and figure that out for themselves. And I think now that I'm in the business world, I have realized that it's much more about pointing people to those conclusions rather than assuming that they're going to get there on their own because it's not always you know, easy, easy to follow. So that's what I mean by underselling myself, is just really kind of like learning how to connect the dots for people in a way that I think in my previous life just wasn't necessary. This is a big question, but how do we get more women in science? It definitely needs to start early. So I'm always... Harassing my three daughters uh, that they should all be scientists or at least consider, you know, scientific pursuits. Uh, I think I'm doing okay with a 14 year old. She just told me she wants to be an engineer. Um, I think it starts with role models. I think we have to see more women in science and in STEM to like inspire younger generations to go down that road. And I also think it comes with embracing some of the qualities that maybe women aren't as comfortable embracing, you know, such as being smart, not all, I mean, at least when I was growing up being a nerd, which I was a card carrying nerd, um, was not always cool. And I think it's just making women feel these days that you know, being smart, being um, good at school, uh, you know, being uh, ambitious are things that are, are awesome and should be pursued rather than shied away
1: from. How do you think we get more female tech founders?
0: Again, I think it's... Seeing other tech founders, that's a huge piece of it. I think it's having more women investors. I mean, I think the All Raise, uh, you know, community has done a really good job with this. I think it's honestly getting, um, you know, men who can be helpful to be helpful. I think there are a lot of men out there that actually do want to change the situation. I mean, I'm married to a white man and I think he has, you know, three daughters and he's very eager to change, um, you know, change the world because I think he does understand He does see the problems and I think, you know, sees it now very personally, like this is going to impact my family. So I think it's about having more examples, getting more people to advocate for us who maybe are not, you know, women, but people that are men, basically, that are aligned um, with that. And I think honestly, I mean, this is going to sound however it's going to sound, I think we can't give up. I mean, it is, there are many times that, you know, we might feel discouraged. I don't know if you ever feel this way, but, you know, I sometimes feel like, gosh, we're not making any progress. We're no. not, you know, and I mean, and I've said this before, I'm I'm going to say it again. We sitting here in this room live in the United States of America. I have, we all probably have a lot of education. You know, we have a lot more privilege than a lot of people, a lot of women in other parts of the world. And I am always thinking to myself how can I use my privilege you know in the situation that I have now to really help all women across the globe really get to a place um, of equality And I think that that is just something we lose sight of sometimes um, and again, there's a lot of lack of privilege here in the United States. don't get me wrong I mean we're you know when you see homeless people with children that just like breaks my heart um, but I'm just trying to say like let's put this in perspective like I may struggle, but there are many, many other people that struggle more than I, and that's what keeps me going, I think, is just realizing, like, yes, I'm having a bad day, yes, this happened, yes, that happened, but I am one of the lucky ones, and I need to use, you know, my advantage to help people that that don't have as much advantage as I do, so that's kind of, that's my advice, is keep, keep
1: struggling, you know? What's the most surprising thing you learned about running a company when it comes to money? Um... You know, I think
0: actually the most surprising thing I've learned is how long you can make it last. So I was joking uh, last night that our burn rate, our monthly burn rate today is what our yearly burn rate used to be five years ago. And that really has taught me that, you know, you can make venture money go further than you would think. I think a lot of times, and again, I'm going to stereotype here, um, people burn through money because they have this image of what a Silicon Valley founder is and you've gotta have all these crazy parties and you've gotta have all these free lunches for everybody and you gotta be taking your entire company to some exotic location because you gotta improve employee morale, you know. And we don't do any of that. I mean I'm sorry. If people come to work at Pymetrics, it's not for the for the extra perks. And, you know, we are always told like, wow, you guys do have really managed to be cash conservative and and in a good way, you know, and I think maybe that's just because we I'm a, it's a woman founder and they've actually shown that you know we generally speaking have sort of more conservative views on cash burn not in a way that would inhibit growth but in a lot of sort of the ways of excess of silicon valley that people kind of turn their nose up now you know what i mean so that's actually been one of i think the learnings for me is that um is you know be be wise with the money that you raise don't don't
1: go crazy so speaking of burn related words a yeah. lot of entrepreneurs Suffer from burnout, so I'm wondering how you cope with the stresses of the job. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I was at a panel last night where
0: somebody asked me, like, well, you know, you know, how do you deal with the times that you're feeling kind of discouraged? I mean, it's probably happened to you in the last year. I was like, yeah, it happened to me yesterday. Like, (laughs) I was literally at the the dining room table, and I was talking to my 14 year old. I was like, I was like, I think I should quit my job. She's like, Mom, she's like, you wouldn't be happy doing that. And of course, I was joking, but you know, so part of it is just having a good support network. you know, and sort of you know realizing that um, it takes a village, it takes you know a family, it takes a team. I mean, I think having a fantastic team. Um, I saw this amazing documentary from Anna Wintour, and you know she's obviously you know the Devil Wears Prada and everything, but she has this great quote where she's like, "You're nothing without your team," and I like could not agree more. Like if you do not have a team, and we do have an amazing team that can just uphold you in times of you know, hardship, um, you're nothing. So I think it's it's really just all about having a good support network and trying to prioritize self-care wherever possible, which I'm very bad at, but trying to get better.
1: Time now for your secrets. I'm
0: Frida Polly, CEO of Pymetrics. My money secret is I have a budget. When I was a single parent, I had I knew exactly what my income was. I knew exactly like I had buckets for everything. And if I went over in one category one month, I'd go, you know, I'd go under in that category the next month or whatever It was just having a budget. It's
1: very simple and boring. Be sure to check out more episodes of Secrets of Wealthy Women on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening.